Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Loretta E. Kim about her new book, Ethnic Chrysalis, China's Orochin People and the Legacy of Qing Borderland Administration, published by the Harvard University Press in 2019. Dr. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. Um, I wonder if you would begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian studies and specifically in the origin people. Right. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I really have to um, say that I appreciate this opportunity to introduce my book and, and to have this conversation with you. Uh, so in terms of how I got interested in this topic, um, I don't think I followed the typical trajectory of knowing exactly what I wanted to do. I like to joke that I migrated uh, from Japan to Korea to China and uh, up north to where I am, kind of nestled between uh, Siberia and and Manchuria, uh, a little bit by serendipity. Um, So just to start at the very beginning, uh, I actually thought that I would pursue a career in government service and specifically in either the Department of Defense or the State Department. And so I thought of my studies as a way to master some expertise about a specific region. And uh, so East Asia seemed like one of the great choices. My other choice was actually Latin America. So you can see you know, how <laughs> fortuitous it was that I, I chose one over the other, so to speak. Um, and then from there, uh, as I moved on from my bachelor's to my master's degree, my interests kind of crystallized a bit, uh, firmed up. I was very interested in Japanese colonialism in Taiwan. And so I spent a lot of um, time thinking about Taiwan. And then uh, USA, I moved uh, over to the Korean Peninsula because I'm ethnic Korean. Uh, And so I started to think about the synergy between Japanese and Korean history. And then to make a very long story short, um, I thought that I would... uh, be most useful to my country, my government, uh, if I concentrated on China, but I was still very much interested in international relations. So I was attracted to China's borderlands. So I thought being posted like somewhere in Shenyang or somewhere or Guangzhou would be great because then I could have more interaction with um, places surrounding China. Uh, but for various reasons, that didn't quite happen by the end of my my doctoral degree program. And so I embarked on uh, thinking about borderlands in a different way, not just as spaces and places, but also the human communities that um, are living in these places. And uh, perhaps being an ethnic minority person myself, uh, I've always been very much interested in non-Han peoples, and I use that term very explicitly. So uh, I don't think anyone really thinks likes to think of themselves as being part of a majority or minority, especially a minority. Uh, 
But I think what has been really significant in the 20th century for a lot of the people I study is the fact that they are not Han. So they're not part of, you know, the 90% or the 95, 97% of people uh, in their country and their nations. So with that in mind, I turned up north uh, towards, uh, again, the borderland between China and Russia. And I discovered that it's a very diverse place. So there are a lot of myths about Northeast China, that it's very monotonous in every way, the environment is barren and so on. But I discovered that's absolutely not true. And um, one of the great things about Northeast China, and by that, I mean, mainly the area of, of Jilin, Liaoning, and Heilongjiang provinces, as well as Eastern Mongolia, is, is the cultural and social diversity. So the origin people are just one of the many uh, indigenous populations, you could say, of that region. So I'll talk a little bit more about why I kind of um, use that phrase gingerly. Uh, and so this book is mainly about the origin, um, but it's also about the, the region as a whole, as a, as a social space, uh, not so much just as a political or economic one as it has been typically depicted in a lot of other studies. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, it's quite a journey that, um, that you came, right, um, from, I guess, the study of, of Northeast Asia in general and specifically now to the Russian people. And thank you for sharing us, uh, sharing that with us, definitely. Um, and, and your book um, is actually the first monograph-length study on the origin people uh, in the English language, um, and that's uh, certainly a highlight. Can you tell us um, a little bit about how you came to write this book? Yes. Uh, well, again, it wasn't fully formed from the beginning, so uh, my book has a rather complicated origin story. Uh, it starts with my doctoral dissertation, where as I was looking at actually the whole region, uh, which is now known as Heilongjiang, and all the people, well, not all the people, some people are, are so underrepresented in history, they're, they're practically invisible, unfortunately. Uh, but anyway, there were, there were a lot of different groups. And um, this actually happened, again, by, somewhat by, by accident. So originally, I was looking at another group completely different from the origin, the, the Sheba people, and how they had uh, migrated from the area, uh, which is now Liaoning province, uh, all the way to Xinjiang. So I was very interested in this, you know, cross borderland um, migration process. But uh, the year that I was presenting my prospectus, a wonderful monograph came out uh, about the the music and literature of this migration. And so uh, I was floored because it was a great book, but it also covered a lot of topics I wanted to uh, delve into, such as about um, the effects of migration on uh, ethnic identity and so on. So I immediately changed focus. And uh, when I was in Beijing at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences as a visiting student, um, my advisor there was, was very firm and very generous to say, well, why are you limiting yourself to one group? Um, that's that's too narrow. You should should look more broadly. And you can see uh, there's much more going on. And many of these groups that were um, living in Northeast China during the Qing dynasty, uh, they had a lot in common as well as, of course, their, their um, distinct characteristics. So, so you should look at all of them. And so my dissertation immediately just grew uh, into a study of uh, five of these groups. And it became much more exciting, but also somewhat um, unwieldy. So after I finished the dissertation, I had to figure out, 
well, how am I going to deal with this, right? So basically, I saw myself writing three different books, uh, and, and that's kind of happened uh, through different publications. Um, but I decided that the, actually the origin are the most fascinating <laughs> of these groups uh, in terms of what I want to study about how uh, an imperial state deals with indigenous populations uh, and what it means to be living in a frontier zone or a borderland uh, and a lot of the constructive relationships. So that happened because I think that often um, studies want to just focus on conflict and that is part of the picture, right, of, of wars and struggles and so on. Uh, but then what we end up ignoring uh, are all of these, you could say, productive relationships that, that also happen. So if I just want to be sensational, I would say that the origin were um, my favorite because they, they're, they're, they were the roguish ones, right? They, they were the ones that were causing trouble and Qing officials would uh, despair in their memorials to the emperor saying, I don't know, we don't know how to deal with these people. Uh, so there's that kind of an appeal. Um, but then you also see the, the flip side where the origin were doing a great deal for the, the Qing state to, to hold up the uh, Qing regional administration in, in Heilongjiang. So uh, I think this really emphasizes and reminds us that we have to uh, see both the constructive and the, the conflictual uh, aspects of, of any relationship. So I, I decided I would focus on that for, for this particular book, uh, but I will go back to the other uh, groups in other books as I'm doing right now. Interesting. Um, now, I guess before we go into the details of the book, um, can you maybe briefly tell us who the origin people are? Right. Uh, well, they are, uh, I'll, I'll start with contemporary definitions. I think that might be easier. Uh, so they are very uh, distinctive in being one of the very smallest uh, groups that are recognized as a, an an ethnic group in China. So I like to call it the under 10,000 uh, cluster of, of ethnic groups, very, very small ethnic groups. If you're just thinking about population size, uh, the current estimates are that there are only 8,000 to about 10,000 people who identify officially, uh, which by that, I mean on their identity cards and so on um, as origin. But of course, what's involved there is some inherent identity politics because a lot of these people who identify as origin will say to you, you know, privately and personally, well, actually I'm only part origin. Uh, so they said, but the other, you know, side of my family is Han or Evenki or, or some other ethnic um, identity. So uh, th some people express ambivalence about this population count. Uh, they are considered as a Tungusic people. If you, um, want to classify them by language. Uh, they claim that they are from uh, very up north in what we may consider now as uh, Siberia as part of the Russian Federation. Uh, so a lot of Orchin who are living now um, do kind of uh, think about those origins and, and some of them do maintain uh, relationships with Orchin who are citizens of the Russian Federation. Um, they are originally, and I 
say this very cautiously because uh, we are very limited in our knowledge of, of origin, history, and culture. But at least as of the 17th century, they're known for being um, a people who uh, whose main livelihoods included uh, fishing and, and hunting. So they're very much uh, living off the land, as most people did, um, in the forests of, of Heilongjiang. Uh, so they were known as, as forest people. Uh, and they were migratory, uh, kind of like other groups in that area. So they would have some fixed settlements and then they would move around based on the seasons uh, to find fish uh, or to hunt game and so on. Uh, they're organized into clans, uh, which could be then organized into villages or what we might call tribes. Uh, they also had very interesting uh, hunting groups that would work together. And these hunting groups uh, were quite democratic in a sense. So they would have a rotating system of leadership. So no one was absolutely the leader all the time. Uh, but they, uh, the leader of a hunting group would would uh, coordinate the hunt. And that uh, the leader would also make sure that the um, output, you could say, the the produce, uh, whatever they they hunted, uh, would be uh, equitably distributed. Also given to uh, people who are marginalized in the community uh, or who were disadvantaged. I would say that's more accurate, such as widows and orphan children. Uh, they uh, have a lot of um, rules governing marriage, so they um, practice exogamy. Exogamy, you you have to marry outside of your clan uh and uh they have a very fascinating um culture of and that sounds really broad but uh i would i would say that that they have a lot of um interesting aspects to their culture that's probably a better way to put it uh such as uh they would create figurines of their ancestors uh during the qing but dressed as qing officials so i was um, in the Provincial Museum of Heilongjiang in Harbin when I first saw one of these figurines. And, you know, at first I thought, ooh, is this kind of like a a voodoo doll, you know, in my ignorance. But then um, I discovered how sacred uh, these figures are and, and how, um, you know, there's evidence that the origin people during the Qing had absorbed, you know, elements of, of other cultures, including Manchu culture and what we might broadly call Han culture and so on. So again, right now there are very few people who uh, are Orchen, uh, who identify as Orchen, uh, who actively practice what you might call as, as Orchen culture. But I would say overall, it's really amazing to see uh, this cultural group or the social group, if you may, uh, without necessarily labeling it as ethnic or whatever, uh, surviving for, for centuries. All right, thank you um, for giving us a, a really kind of thorough introduction on the Orochian people. I think a lot of our readers might be wondering about the title of the book, which is really a kind of fascinating um, title, right? Ethnic Chrysalis. Um, are, you, are you conveying a sense of transformation here? Right. Uh, the title was actually the hardest part of the book. <laughs> and writing the manuscript, um, I was almost concerned that I couldn't publish this book because I didn't have a, an appropriate title. So I, I actually had a lot of dreams and nightmares about what to call it. Um, now I realize of course, that there are a lot of people who could help with this, like like uh, editors and and um, 
other people involved in the publication process. But but basically, I wanted to, uh, you know, convey something pithy, right? Something simple and and to the point. Um, but also, you know, to to make somewhat of a difference, right? So if I just stuck with a very dry title, like what's to the right of the colon. Um, in the book title that that may not quite be enough. So in fact, uh, the original title was going to be something that um, was closer to human frontiers. So I was, I was very inspired by Owen Lattimore and other scholars uh, notions that, you know, frontiers are determined uh, more by people uh, than by inanimate objects like boundary markers uh, or even, you know, how boundaries are drawn up in, in legal treaties and so on. So I want to do something about the origin because they were very mobile people. So, so in, in, in fact, in, in um, prior to the 20th century, they often determined where the actual border between the Chinese state and the, the Russian state would lie. Uh, but then that didn't seem quite right. And so I turned to the other aspect of the book, which is really about uh, ethnicity. Uh, but then I had to really figure out my own position about was there ethnicity during the Qing, uh, pre-modern ethnicity and so on. And after really probing myself and and being honest, um, I decided, well, you know, kind of in the middle, in the awkward middle, uh, in the sense that I would say, yes, perhaps if we went back in time to the 18th century and we interviewed uh, some of these people that I'm studying as respondents, you know, they might say, well, yes, true. You know, we do have a a common culture or yes, yes, we feel very strongly about our shared language or so on. So you you could detect uh, elements of ethnicity there, um, but they they wouldn't describe themselves as such. Right. So they, I mean, even now uh, a lot of people who have origin on their official identification cards, you know, don't really take stock in that. They said, well, this is just a label. It's not that important to me, or it's not the most important way that I define myself. So why would they uh, in earlier times? So uh, what I want to convey with with Chrysalis um, is that, well, unfortunately, ethnicity is always about evolution. It's always about development. So uh, ethnicity will vary in importance for for individuals for groups over time uh at this point for example i think that ethnicity does not mean as much as it did 20 30 years ago to a lot of people um in mainland china so despite the fact that there are still official ethnic policies there are 56 ethnic groups and so on um these ideas are are changing in in value, and we have to respect that. And so, I wanted to accord the same respect uh, in historical sense, and and say, well, we're not going to say that you know these people that I'm studying became origin during the Qing, right? That would be too definitive and too state oriented. Uh, but at the same time, we can't ignore uh, the fact that the Qing state was was actively trying to uh, gather more information about these people, to to group them to classify them and so on. So although I think the ethnic identification project that occurred um, in mainland China in the 1950s and 60s is considered to be monumental, right? It's highly scientific, rational. uh, It's an anthropological, you know, feat and so on. Uh, A lot of what happened then was actually also going on centuries before. So I also wanted to to articulate and, and, and emphasize 
that, right? So that, that China has been going through a very, very long process of understanding what ethnicity means and how to employ ethnicity as a political, economic, and, and social tool. So um, in some ways, you could say that people are always living in a chrysalis, that they're always uh, still trying to figure out who they actually are. Um, and it's fine to change. It's fine to kind of shed off one ethnic identity and adopt another or uh, to adopt multiple ethnic identities and so on. So uh, when I talk to origin people who are, are uh, living today, you know, of course they, they do that, especially if they, you know, are actively um, proud of their, their blended heritage, right? They say, well, my mother is origin, but my father is Han or my father's Mongol, my mother is origin, so on and so forth. Uh, they're able to fully embrace more than one ethnic identity. And in doing so, they're also enhancing and enriching what it means to be origin. All right, thank you. I, I think it's a really thought-provoking uh, title. And um, uh, maybe let's go into some of the chapters in your book. Um, so chapter one uh, looks at two general strategies developed with the rise of the chain. Um, one is um, the military conscription and the other is tribute. Um, and in the book, you kind of mentioned that the origin people at the Qing frontiers were classified into the Moringa origin uh, or the mounted, um, and then the Yafahan origin uh, or the pedestrian. Can you explain what these categories are and what these two strategies meant for the governance of, of Qing Manchuria or Northeast um, uh, Asia? Certainly. Uh, so I think the, the easiest way perhaps to, to start is um, just to, to admit, you know, that uh, any empire, however mighty or influential, you know, is probably always aware of its limitations. And I think this is very clear with the Qing. So uh, even though now, you know, the official rhetoric is that, you know, the area now previously known as Manchuria, now known as Northeast China, was, you know, always a part of China and so on. That's been a solid part of, of Chinese territory. Uh, just going back into the 16th, 17th century, you realize that wasn't true, right? There was a lot of ambiguity um, and perhaps a bit of apathy, right, on the, the parts of the Ming and, and Qing government about having complete control at, at first. Uh, so um, it kind of, how do I put it, uh, circumstance played a, a great role in how uh, the Sino-Russian or Qing-Romanov borderland evolved uh, during the 17th uh, and into the 18th centuries. Uh, and it, it took a lot of uh, push and pull negotiation between the two imperial states, but also uh, between the imperial states and the indigenous populations uh, of that region. So, um, we see this, of course, not only in Manchuria, but other parts of the Qing Empire, uh, namely Mongolia. So we talk about Outer Mongolia and Inner Mongolia and how the uh, Mong Mongols in the outer part, which is farther away from uh, the imperial capital, actually had more autonomy than those who were closer, and they played different roles and so on. Uh, similarly, the division of the origin uh, occurred along similar lines. So the at first, the, the Qing state was not very comfortable with the origin that were living um, relatively farther away from the Qing capitals, right? Whether you're talking about Mukden or, or Beijing. 
uh, and they're just they weren't sure what to to do with them. So uh, a lot of these groups were not not exactly left alone, uh, but they were given more free reign, de facto free reign. So they they still had to check in with uh, the officials uh, who were assigned to monitor them. They had to provide tribute in the form of pelts and uh, other things. Uh, they would be punished if they committed transgressions and so on. Uh, but these are the people we would call the Yafahan origin, uh, or that's what they were called in the documents. And, and Yafahan means on foot. Uh, so uh, they were not granted horses or other resources. They were very much on their own. Uh, but they, they understood they were still within the limits of the, the Qing Empire, but in, in a looser sense uh, than Orchin, who were geographically closer uh, in and easier to monitor. And these people were incorporated into the Eight Banners. So their their story is perhaps more conventional. They're more standard. Uh, they were like many other indigenous groups like the Daoer and uh, the Sheba who were brought in to use a euphemistic term, into the the eight banners, and so they were uh, brought in as uh, actually whole groups, as as tribes, as families, and so on. And and the Qing administration was very practical. They didn't immediately just say, "Well, you're going to have to convert into so-called full bannermen or be like Manchus." Uh, but often these groups, uh, especially at the beginning, they had a Manchu or Mongol you could say official who was overseeing them, but their uh, direct leader. So for a particular uh, squad or something uh, would be someone of their own group. Right. So, so that was a much more effective form of leadership to, to be, you know, if you report to someone who's directly um, above you, who is, you know, of the same clan or, or uh, was previously a leader in your village or something, you, you immediately um, accord that person more respect and uh, you value their authority. So this this happened with the Moringa origin and their and Moringa means on horseback. So that's why you might call them the mounted origin. So so for the Moringa origin, the experience is, is very similar to other eight banner groups in Manchuria. Uh, whereas the Yafan origin, uh, as they were, described in government documents um, had a, had a, had a, I wouldn't call it an entirely exceptional experience, but a, a very different experience uh, because of the, the mobility, the greater freedom they, they technically enjoyed. But again, there were, there were drawbacks, right? So the Moringo origin where uh, like other Manchurian bannermen, they didn't receive the full benefits that say uh, a Manchu bannerman in Beijing would receive in terms of material resources or um, access to, government posts or so on, but the Yafahan were completely, again, as I mentioned before, on their their own. So so they had to figure out a way to fulfill their obligations to the government uh, with, you could say, some support. So so for providing the requisite tribute, right, they had a, a quota for every tribute cycle. Uh, if they fulfilled the, the, the quota, then they would receive small gifts, right, the ulin. Um, and you could say in some ways this was nominal. Uh, this was kind of like getting something back for paying taxes. Uh, for the most part, until the early 19th century, I would say that the Yafan Orchin really didn't have many problems with this because you know the quota was so small compared to what they were actually able to hunt. So if you had to only submit one or two really good pelts, but you could hunt many animals uh, in a season, then then it wasn't 
very difficult. Uh, but over time, of course, it became much more difficult as uh, the, the supply of animals in the region uh, declined. All right, thank you. So I guess having the um, historical background or the contextualization in chapter one, um, it's it's a lot um, more interesting to kind of look at your arguments in chapter two, right? Here you shift your focus to 17th century um, Heilongjiang in northeast China. Um, and here you show that there was actually mutual influence right, of the Qing Center and indigenous people in the implementations of administrative institutions. So it's not just a one-way um, kind of uh, relation. So how did they influence or negotiate with one another? Right. Uh, so one of the goals of chapter two was to, to borrow a common or often used phrase to, to rewrite or to, uh, to, to bring in, to supplement uh, what's been done before in terms of the narrative. So a lot of previous studies of 17th century Heilongjiang uh, really treat the Indigenous people as a Greek chorus, as um, extras, <laughs> if you want to use a movie metaphor, uh, that they were kind of uh, shuffled around, manipulated, um, assigned them very marginal roles and so on. And the way I saw it, it wasn't that way. I mean, of course, if you really just want to focus on everything leading up to the Treaty of Nurchinsk uh, in 1689 as that, you know, you could. Uh, take that approach, but I saw that really it wasn't you know that simple. And as I said before, the the Qing was not completely omnipotent in this in this region. Uh, so they they were very aware that they had to cooperate, co-opt, uh, do what they could with uh, the resources available to them in the region uh, to influence the people that they wanted to govern. So uh, that was really. The, the, the foremost goal. So I hope that, you know, from now on, we can uh, continue our dialogue about what was going on uh, in terms of uh, people coming in from the, the Russian side of the uh, the border that would be established and uh, you know, how they were interacting. So some of the, the content of this chapter is, you know, very familiar to a lot of uh, readers, probably the, the specialists are all very aware, aware of uh, things like the, the, the what happened at Yaksa, or otherwise known as Albazin, uh, the clashes between Cossacks and uh, the various indigenous groups there and so on. Uh, but the point is that um, and ultimately what the Qing had to do is they had to be very pragmatic and they had to figure out, okay, so how were we going to actually govern these people? And so, as I said before, uh, with the origin, you know, if you tried to kind of literally kind of... Uh, get all the origin together and have them all be bannermen uh, in a complete sense to, to be completely incorporated into the banners. I don't think that would have worked, right? The, a lot of them would have just escaped to Russia or Russian imperial territory, which, which many of them tried to do. They would just say, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm not going to pay your tribute or, or, you know, be uh, part of your military. So I'm just going to leave. Uh, and so I think the Qing was very, very well, well, well aware of that. So what they, they had to do was say, okay, what can we actually do? Um, how can we figure out a way to give these people some incentives uh, to remain with us, uh, to comply with most of our policies, at least uh, not all the time. There was an hundred percent success rate. And uh, so that's how I think the, um, what we might call the the Heilongjiang generalship uh, evolves. So the the placement of 
of the garrisons, the, the development of garrisons in different places, uh, as you can see on a map. Um, if you if you look at a map, uh, they they couldn't reach all the way up to the very kind of edge, the northern edge of uh, what is now Heilongjiang. Anyways, uh, they they were of course patrols that went around. Uh, to the eventual borders, uh, but they had to rely on people who were familiar with these areas to do them, right? So if you sent officials who uh, were basically always working at the regional center uh, to do these alone, they wouldn't do a very good job, right? They wouldn't know where to go, what to look for, and so on. But if you send them out or you have them working with people who really know the terrain, uh, very familiar with the terrain, then you'll get better results. Uh, And so... I think what it does, if I may use this metaphor as a, or I don't know if it counts as a metaphor, but um, it, to put it a simple way is that it really humanizes uh, the Qing imperial state, right? So instead of thinking of it as, as this machine uh, or, or something that was very, you know, um, comprehensive or, or um, effective from the start, uh, you actually see it as as a, a thinking, feeling kind of thing. So, so we see that when the indigenous people would, um, I don't want to use the term, you know, fight back because I think that's uh, that's pejorative. But I think that when they reacted negatively against policies, uh, that the, the Qing state was able to to alter and and to modify. Right. So, so in, again, instead of just imposing policy after policy. Uh, you really see this as um, a two-way kind of dynamic. And so I think that's how uh, the regional administration up in Heilongjiang was very different than, say, a provincial administration uh, in central or southern China. Uh, And it was probably also very different from the other parts of Manchuria. So I think in some ways uh, the area which is now Liaoning or the area which is now Jilin, uh, they had other characteristics to deal with. Uh, but because Heilongjiang was closest to Siberia, to, to Russian imperial territory, that uh, there were many more military challenges. Uh, you could say there's also a lot of temptation because uh, the Orchin, as well as other people, they really loved to trade with Russians and, and they didn't want to give that up uh, because of a border or something like that. They would often go and, and trade with people up there and then come back and say, oh, really? Oh, did I cross the border? <laughs> so uh, the, the Qing had to understand that. So, so Qing officials would complain and say, oh, the Orchin are going up there again and, and trading with the Russians. Um, but then it was very hard to always implement deterrence. I see. Um, and, and this is a really interesting point because in your um, narratives in the book, you also point out that the Orangians are not simply loyal subjects or troublesome rebels um, in the Qing Empire. Um, and this is sort of what you um, discuss in detail in Chapter 3. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about the, the specific kinds of roles that the Orangian people played uh, on the Qing territories uh, or the frontiers? Yes. Uh, so, right. I mean, those two ideas are obviously very stereotypical of the loyal subject or troublesome rebels. Um, now, of course, because the origin side of the story uh, during the Qing can't be told uh, from you know a direct perspective because we we don't have uh, a lot of extant you know materials that can be triangulated and so on um, and verified as as such uh you know it in some ways this this book has to be very lopsided right towards the the Qing 
um, perspective and and how the origin were depicted in Qing documents. And as we all know, government documents are always biased, so they're always going to uh, reflect uh, the officials' interests and so on. Uh, but in some ways, the officials, you know, would actually include some some origin voices, and uh, they were also uh, cognizant, or they would try to build in some rationale for some of the actions. So, in terms of the roles they played, well, the origin, first of all, were excellent hunters. Uh, they they were just prolific in that sense. They, they were known as some of the best uh, hunters in the region, if not the best. Uh, the, the Yafan origin would consistently outperform their, their tribute quotas. So compared to other groups, they would just be racking up the points, so to speak. Uh, and they, they were very good about that. And I think that was much appreciated, of course, uh, because these pelts would go into the imperial coffers. Uh, they were also known for being extremely brave, right? So if, if you're talking about, you know, needing a good first line defense uh, for your borderland, the origin were it, right? They, they not only had extensive knowledge of the geography, uh, they were great guerrilla fighters, so they would literally disappear into the forest or the mountains. Uh, much to the annoyance of Qing officials sometimes would say, oh, there, they've gone again. They've just disappeared, right? Um, they're not happy with us, so they've, they've gone away. And then they would... Um, reappear later on. Uh, but that was very helpful in, in warfare uh, against both people coming from, you know, the the international enemy side or the intra inter-imperial side from, from the Russian side of the border. So if you had incursions from, from Russian imperial territory, the origin would uh, be very brave fighters, uh, but also fighting in the 19th century against um, people who would be called bandits or so on. So, so people who are causing uh, disturbances within the region, you know, go send the origin out. They will, they will do a great job of, of dealing with these people. Um, as I said before, they were also uh, very adept at trade. So, so the origin uh, didn't think that a border, especially one set by two imperial states, should limit them in terms of the acquisition of resources. So if they needed to do it, uh, they would cross this border and they would bring back uh, goods from the Russian side of the border, uh, they were also form relationships with Russian merchants who would come into their territory, and uh, these relationships were very practical in a sense. You know, it was about trade, but they also could become very personal. So a Russian merchant could literally be uh, an uncle, or or be treated like an uncle in origin clan and uh, have a long lasting relationship. They would eat together, drink together, celebrate uh, special occasions together, things like that. And this was also very annoying to the, the Qing government. They said, you know, the origin, they're embracing the culture of the enemy. Uh, the women are starting to wear Russian skirts and why do they want to eat Russian food and, and so on. So they, the, the, the Qing officials uh, monitoring the origin tried to, to uh, restrict these kind of practices, but they didn't really succeed because ultimately the origin were great cultural intermediaries. Um, they understood Russian culture or, you know, what we can loosely call Russian culture of the time. Uh, many origin became fluent in Russian language as well through these exchanges. Uh, we don't know much about their literacy. I'm guessing it was mainly about uh, mastering the oral language, but origin also learned Manchu uh, and they learned the languages of neighboring uh indigenous groups. So, so the, another role that they would often play is that of interpreter. So if you need someone who had to uh, go up and negotiate with Russian speaking people, well, 
you know, please bring an Orishan person with you and, and they can do the translation from Russian to Manchu or so on. Uh, so those are just some of the rules that they, they play, but I think they're very important. All right. Thank you. And I guess one important fact, um, just sort of uh, following up on your <clears throat> um, previous comment, that the Orishan people did not really have a written language, right? Um, and so how does this complicate our story here? Right. Uh, well, this is again going to a little bit of a conspiracy theory, but uh, I just think that we have not really discovered Orchin records yet or records of other groups in, in Manchuria that we uh, think too much, too narrowly in terms of uh, script, of, of texts, uh, the way that they're uh, organized and preserved for, say, the Chan Chinese language tradition or the Manchu or Mongol language traditions. Uh, I, I still believe that the, the origin kept records, uh, which were not all oral. So, of course, we have some oral records that have survived for centuries. Uh, but I think, you know, someday we may discover something um, be it in terms of a, a symbol-based language or, or something. Um, but in terms of the research here, of course, you know, I, I wanted to be more balanced. I wanted to have uh, an equitable body of sources to work with, but that's just very difficult, right? So, so we, you know, we can't go back and take testimonials from origin living 200, 300 years ago. So I think if, if that were ever possible, or if we could discover their voices uh, in those alternative written records, uh, that would probably transform the story. Oh, that's fascinating. I hope we do find something uh, in, the, in the future, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one other really exciting part about the book is, um, so in the first three chapters, um, you discuss, of course, the orange people, um, but also their relations with other um, uh, minority groups in the Manchuria region, such as the Daur, the Hujie, the uh, Shibe, and the Solon people. Um, so can you maybe tell us a little bit more about their relationships? Certainly, right. Uh, so, yeah, it's... it's um... It was a tough decision to just put China's origin people on the, the cover as part of the title because this is not simply a, a narrative that involves the, the origin. Um, most simply put, in pre-modern Manchuria, in the pre-20th century before ethnic classification was really solidified by the Republican and communist governments, I don't think these people would really have a strong sense of differentiating themselves. I mean, of course, they felt very strongly about belonging to certain clans or villages or so on, but they had a lot of interaction with each other. Um, there was, uh, you know, very intimate interaction like intermarriage, but just more commonly, uh, these groups would work together. In terms of uh, their livelihoods, hunting and fishing together, and and so what we really see is this common culture forming uh, in the in the region. And so I, I liken that to how people in Northeast China today also feel very strongly. So a lot of them uh, say, well, you know, I think in some ways we are the most integrated region, right? So we don't have all these little local and regional differentiations. Uh, we like to be northeasterners. You know, they're really proud of that. Uh, and, and they understand that their culture or what they consider to be their shared culture is you know, very 
diverse, it's better, very heterogeneous, that there are elements of um, all different kind of subcultures mixed in and so on. And uh, what I was trying to think about was how that actually started much earlier on. So um, again, among all of these people, the origin, the, the, the dower and so on, they interacted a lot. Um, but of course there were, there were some, uh, differences. Uh, so the dower, for example, because they were completely incorporated into the eight banners, uh, they often served as officials who were monitoring other groups like the origin, right? So, so you would have dower, uh, supervisors for the Yafahan origin and who would have to go into those areas and, uh, collect the tribute or count up the tally of the tribute, uh, and relations could be a bit fraught, right? So, uh, there are origin folktale about both good and bad, uh, dower officials, right? So the good dower officials mm-hmm. would be sympathetic, um, would, uh, distribute the adequate number of, um, gifts in, um, in exchange for the the tribute items and so on, they would they would be very civil. And then, of course, you have dower officials who would be exploitative, you know, who would come in and demand more than the tribute quota or uh, a particularly insidious trick, as we can imagine, would be that uh, the dower officials would take all the really good pelts for themselves and, and then uh, report back uh, to the Heilongjiang general that uh, the origin had failed to meet their quota or uh, were only producing inferior pelts. And so this would upset the origin greatly. They said, no, we gave you, you know, first class pelts and, and you just happened to <laughs> yourself so you know there was corruption and so on so uh there again there was a a mix of uh, positive and negative uh relationships between these different groups but what i want to do was uh show both aspects yeah definitely these three chapters are definitely really um interesting to read um and i I guess towards the end in chapter uh, four especially um, you kind of um, show that by the mid-19th century, at least, former ways of governing the Orochin actually became quite unsustainable. Um, can you tell us why this was the case and why, And then what did the Qing state uh, really do to address this issue? Yes. Uh, well, I'll start actually on a slight tangent, which is that I didn't want this chapter to be about the decline of the Qing state because... Uh, one of my advisors, when I was writing my dissertation, would uh, strongly warn me against uh, being attracted by the framework of, of imperial decline. And, and he would say, well, is it ever evident to any state or any community that um, it is in decline, right? I mean, it's not like you can already predict an endpoint and say, oh, there we are, we're, we're, we're going down. Uh, so it's not really about that, but actually uh, quite opposite. Uh, even though the former strategies and the institutions set up in the 17th and 18th century were not working as well in the 19th century, that uh, this is a, a phase in which the Qing state tried to be resilient and, and try to maintain control, but again, in a, in a inherently flexible way. So by adapting, by changing so much, which, you know, from our perspective in the present day could be seen as a sign of weakness, it was actually a, a form of um, exerting or trying to maintain strengths. So in terms of the reasons why the institutions weren't working, first of all, we have, um, environmental changes. So despite 
the Orchin being very talented hunters. Uh, they simply just couldn't uh, hunt as much as, as before because, because the Qing tribute quotas depleted the uh, natural populations of fur-bearing animals. So other, other scholars have looked into this, of course, very recently, and it was just very, very hard, right? So uh, Orchin hunters would have to go farther and farther, especially away from their home areas, uh, to, to seek out animals that would um, yield the high-quality pelts that uh, the Qing administration demanded, and, and this became more difficult. And they would complain about it. They would say, I, I've gone really far. I've tried really hard. I've worn out my horses trying to get you your pelts, but this is not happening. Uh, so they would say, could you reduce the quota? Could you suspend the quota? So on and so forth. Uh, and then you could see some people were acting out of desperation. So some, some origin would say, we, we just can't live under this regime. So we're going to go up to Russia. And so that would weaken the, the border or the sense of the border between uh, Russia and, and Qing territory. And so that became more difficult to deal with. And so in some ways, uh, the Qing reacted by trying to pull or literally draw these origin people in. So they did this most significantly with the Yafahan, right? They said, well, okay, the Yafahan used to have a lot of mobility, but now we're going to mandate that they attend these military training drills, that they report to us more frequently so that we can increase our surveillance of them. Uh, but of course that would, you know, backfire. So that worked to a point, but people, some of the Yafan origin would say, well, why should I show up? Right. What's the incentive? I don't get anything out of it. Well, I might get a little, little something out of it, but you know, it's not worth the effort and, and so on. So uh, throughout chapter four, you can see that there were all these different strategies that they're trying to use, whether it was setting up uh, a new garrison or, or trying to, um, create incentives for origin uh, to, to be loyal and so on. Uh, but again, uh, it, this is all uh, supposed to be contextualized in a spirit of, of resilience. So the Qing wasn't just giving up and saying, okay, we're going to throw up our hands. We can't deal with these people anymore. They were, they were trying their best to, to maintain some uh, degree of control. I see. Um, I guess the final uh, chapter or the fifth chapter um, kind of follows this um, period, but also reflects uh, the effects of the origin experience during the Qing um, and also um, a modern origin identity. Um, so how has the identity for the origin people been characterized since the fall of the Qing Empire, especially in the 20th century and beyond? Right. Well, this is a... A very interesting question because a lot of the shaping of the origin identity has actually still come from states, whether it was uh, people writing uh, regional gazetteers during the Republican period or uh, officials, cadres conducting the ethnic identification project in, in the area and thereby saying these people are origin and these people are not. Uh, uh, but interestingly enough, if we do think about the sort of folk elements or the non-political ideology-driven elements of this identity, uh, they, they're really connected back to what happened uh, during the Qing. So uh, this is true for the origin, also for the Daur, Evenki, Shiba peoples. Uh, they feel very strongly, they're very proud of the fact uh, that their ancestors played significant roles as um, borderland defense forces, uh, that they provided tribute to the Qing Empire. And, and these are 
these memories or, or, or these precedents are seen as, as badges of honor. And so even though these groups uh, are relatively small in the greater you know, scale or spectrum of uh, the PRC, that they thought that they were very distinctive in this way, that they're heroes, uh, that they still embody these, you know, martial traits that they, they are honorable and brave and so on. So that, that got factored in. I think a lot of that was um, absorbed into the definition of who they are after 1950. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, the Orchin have also been seen as, as still being very primitive and that's very politically incorrect, but you know they're they're seen as being oh primordial, and they have these uh, very um, traditional ways of hunting and fishing, and and so um, present day origin also have to grapple with that, right? Because it's it's very hard to to just envision yourself as as being you know that way, and then trying to be proud of that, you know, rather than being modern and sophisticated and so on. Uh, so in in chapter five, I was I was helping the reader, you know, go through all of these different layers, right? And and this goes back to the the idea of a chrysalis that that the, the mm-hmm. origin identity uh, may have always existed in some sense, right? So that's kind of the 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 caterpillar inside the chrysalis, but then all these layers have been added and some of them have been added by origin people themselves and others have been added by people who are, are not origin. And, and so they've encapsulated and kind of embodied um, what it means to be origin. Uh, but I would say, you know, individually, the layers wouldn't make sense that, that you have to uh, see them all together as, as an integrated whole. I see. Oh, thank you for that. Um, and I guess lastly, um, there is one, uh, I guess, fact that you mentioned towards the end of the book that in the 1950s, uh, especially the origin were actually forced to uh, integrate into communities in which their minority status meant that they had to, uh, for example, intermarry and to rely on other languages for communication. And then as a result, uh, many origin began to lose their native tongue. Uh, so what does this mean for the future of the origin people? Yes, uh, this is an issue that I've been thinking about for a long time, and uh, I'm really inspired by a lot of uh, people uh, who uh, claim ethnic minority identity in mainland China and the PRC, uh, irrespective of if they're origin or otherwise. Uh, this notion of you know how connected you have to be to your ancestral culture or your native culture, and part of that is is language. So yes, a lot of origin were. Um, compelled or maybe incentivized to to marry outside of their ethnic group, uh, to marry up, so to speak, right? So an origin mm-hmm. person marrying a Han person was considered that's a great improvement. Their children will be better off for it. Um, and also to, to uh, use Chinese as their primary language of communication and so on. And of course, you know, I want to follow along with what actually makes sense for people. So I, I started out my career, you know, thinking of ethnicity as a kind of an ideal to be achieved, uh, to be embodied and so on. Uh, and then more and more I've become more pra- practical about it. Right. So in some ways this is, this book is an elegy to ethnic identity in China, because I, I feel like in the decades to come, ethnicity will mean something very different or mean maybe almost nothing at all to, to most people, whether they are part of the ethnic minority or uh, part of the ethnic majority, I would say, or the ethnic minority groups um, that are officially and legally uh, prescribed as such. So uh, 
for language, it's tricky because going back to people who talk to me now, they say, well, I don't speak my language. I don't speak my ancestral language. Am I still a part of my ethnic group? And mm-hmm. I respond, well, yeah, if you want to be, you know, I mean, I'm not going to dictate to you, yes, you are or you're not. Uh, but if you want to be, right? So uh, what that means is, I would say, just recalibrating your expectations or, or kind of um, thinking in a different way, right? So it, what does it mean to be Orchin without uh, being proficient in Orchin language? I think it's still possible, right? It's no less authentic, Uh but then, of course, you know, there's there are some calls, uh, not so much in the past few years for the obvious political reasons, but uh, and the constraints imposed on on a lot of ethnic uh, groups. But but you know, they they say, well, you know, can we revive it? Can we bring back the language, or can we make the language more relevant? Because that's one of the major problems, right? Many origin will say, so what is the point of me learning origin? It's not a practical language. I can't surf the web in origin, mm-hmm. you know, unless there are resources, right? If, if someone builds, you know, origin web pages, well, maybe that might change things, right? Much like Mongols, you know, Mongols in the PRC can still, um, you know, keep their language alive through, through using a lot of media and so on and so forth. Uh, but for uh, the, many of these groups, they just don't see the value of it. So I think what we're going to have to do if we want to support uh, groups like the origin is is to do this kind of development and preservation work, but on the other hand, you know, even though I, I work on ethnic studies and ethnic history, if it if it becomes irrelevant, if it becomes obsolete, then we also have to embrace that too, right? So there's no point in saying, well, you have to maintain your ethnicity so I can study you. <laughs> you have to say, all right, well, you know, that might be a historical phenomena. That was something that was relevant to you in the past, but it isn't now, and and that's completely fine. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess um, we've taken up a lot of your time already. Um, our final question would be, are you uh, currently working on any projects that you can tell us about? Oh, I'd be happy to. Uh, so I'll just mention two things that I'm doing right now. Uh, first of all, I'm working on a name lexicon data set of names of uh, non-Han individuals in mm. the area you know, roughly that we would call Northeast China from 1600 to the present. So it's it's been this really exciting uh, endeavor of just uh, going through all these different sources and, and finding all these, discovering all these names. Uh, and just briefly, I'm doing this for two reasons. First of all is the preservation aspect. So uh, when people ask me, can you give me an example of an origin name or dower name? Uh, I want to say, sure, there are all of these different names. Uh, and this is especially true for people who claim this heritage or claim this as part of their heritage. As if there's a dower person who wants to name him or herself a dower name, you know, I want them to have something to go to, kind of like a baby book. So there's that aspect. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the scholarly aspect, I would say, is uh, to broaden our understanding of uh, Manchurian culture, a Manchurian society, which I think has been heavily dominated by by Manchus, right? The, the notion of the Manchu language being supreme in that area, the early modern period and so on. So in fact, we've discovered that there are many names which you might consider to be Manchu names, but actually originate in non-Manchu groups. But but these groups mm-hmm. marginalized or pushed out or, or their origins have been obscured or so on. Uh, in these names, so it's it's bringing that back uh, 
into the light. So that's a point of the, the name lexicon. Uh, and the second project, which is also um, coming through in a book, is about food culture. And I'm not a food historian, uh, but I've been very much influenced by both food historians and environmental historians. So what I'm actually looking at is uh, how uh, Northeastern food culture has evolved as uh uh, heterogeneous, you could call it multi-ethnic, polyethnic uh, kind of thing. And this ties back to my earlier comments about Northeast China uh, being a place which is very inherently, you know, embracing of, of different cultures. So, you know, a lot of people will say to me, oh, Northeast Chinese food is terrible. It all tastes the same. It's the same five ingredients, you know, combined together in different ways. Uh, they're so, you know, poor in resources there. And then if you go back into history, of course, that's not true that you'll, you'll see that, you know, literally there are all these recipes that bring in uh, the diverse um, animal and plant resources of the region and so on. So to me, you know, this is kind of my tribute to, to how uh, diverse and, and interesting Northeast China actually is. Wow, these are really unique and exciting projects. I'm definitely looking forward to learning more about them. I'm sure our readers as well. Well, um, I think um, we're done with our podcast. But before we hang up, I just want to say that I had a really great time reading your book. This is definitely um, something that our readers want to pick up if you're interested in East Asian history, especially in Northeast Asian history. So definitely um, check out um, Dr. Loretta Kim's new book on the origin people. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about your wonderful projects. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.